Please pray with me. Almighty King of Kings and Lord of Lords, you reign. You are glorious and gracious, kind and loving, a good, good Father. You have given us the gift of your breathed out word to guide us, strengthen us, and sustain us by lighting our path in this dark, dark world. Thank you, Father. I pray that you would open our eyes right now. Give us teachable hearts and responsive spirits as we open to Esther chapter four. Transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit as we study this passage. To that end, Lord, use me as your humble servant. I am all yours. Empower every word that I speak with the anointing of your Holy Spirit. This I ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our beautiful scepter and savior. Amen. What evil in this world makes you pray for someone to do something? Have you ever been in a situation that made you cry out, somebody needs to do something? Many years ago, when my youngest son, Evan, was about eight or nine years old, he went on a fishing trip with my husband. Evan loved to be out on the water fishing. So when my husband decided to come home early because the fish weren't biting, Evan stayed with an uncle and a cousin on their fishing boat named the Rankin. While they were still out on the water, a violent storm caught them by surprise. At home, we watched as the storm blew in right where we knew they were. This was in the mid-90s. There were no mobile phones with weather apps or GPS apps. We tried to contact them by radio, but we got no response for a long, long time. We started to get that sick to your stomach kind of worried. There was no contact and we had no visible means of help or hope. Our hearts cried out, somebody, anybody needs to do something. It was then that my husband and I remembered a few high-ranking men in the Coast Guard who went to our church. After we reached out to them, Coast Guard boats began radioing the Rankin with their high-powered radios. There was no answer. Soon, a Coast Guard helicopter was sent out on a search and rescue. There was no trace of them. Family members began to panic. My child was not the only one missing that day. Amid the panic, God began to bring to my mind his attributes, truths about him that I had recently started to discover in an in-depth study of his word. I had just begun to understand what God's sovereignty means. I had just begun to learn about his faithfulness through the wonderful hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. This faithfulness, the flawless faithfulness of God, is what we see behind the scenes in Esther chapter 4. 
If you recall at the end of Esther chapter 3, the wicked Haman got King Ahasuerus to issue a kingdom-wide decree to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews. Mordecai's world was spinning. The world of every Jew in the kingdom of Persia was spinning. What would they do? What could they do? Truly, they were helpless and hopeless, captive to the whim of a weak and erratic king. Someone needed to do something. Little did they know, someone was doing something. Something extraordinary through an ordinary young woman. God is flawlessly faithful to his people. That truth is our focus as we work through this passage in two divisions, the plight and the peril. The first division is the plight, Esther chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. If you'll open your Bibles, you can follow along with me. Verses 1 through 3. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth, and ashes. Mordecai learned all that had been done. This suggests that he had inside information, which we will read about later. Mordecai reacts with great emotion. His personal conflict with Haman had endangered the entire Jewish nation. While Haman's plan to annihilate all the Jewish people is wildly out of proportion to Mordecai's offense, Mordecai's behavior gave him the excuse that he needed to put the power of the Persian kingdom behind his anti-Semitism. When Mordecai learned of the law that Haman created and put into effect, he begins to mourn. He does not mourn privately, but very publicly in the middle of the city and up to the king's gate. Mordecai, dressed in sackcloth and covered in ashes, cries out loudly, bitterly. His heart cry was that someone needed to do something. Now note that Mordecai does not enter the king's gate. This was forbidden for a mourner. The king maintained a distance between himself and all the sorrow and sadness of his empire. We saw this in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 2. The people surrounding the king put on their happy faces and did not let the king see their trouble or any troubles. For the same reasons, kings in medieval times had court jesters, not court mourners. Mordecai's anguish was great. Yet there is no evidence it caused him to change his mind about bowing and scraping before Haman. Could he have been the someone to do something 
if he had? Mordecai knew that the Persian law could not be changed once it had been decreed. His doom and the doom of his people was sealed. He tore his clothes. The Persians in Susa would have recognized the significance of Mordecai's behavior. They also had the custom of tearing their clothes in grief. Mordecai put on sackcloth. Now sackcloth was made of coarse goat or camel hair. It was very rough and uncomfortable when worn close to the skin. He put ashes or dust on his head. His grief was profound and unmistakable. Every Jew in the vast Persian empire joined him. They greatly mourned, weeping and lamenting their fate. What is missing, though, is repentance and prayer. What is missing is any mention of God. In 2 Chronicles verse 6, dispossessed Jews are instructed to repent and pray. Godly Jews who obeyed this instruction are seen in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel. Esther, Mordecai, and the Jews in the Persian Empire do not do this. They are not a godly people. Further proof of this is found in the fact that there are no prophets mentioned in Esther. There were prophets in Israel, in Ezra and Nehemiah. God spoke to his people through them. But when God does not send prophets, it's like God took his eyes away from his people, leaving them spiritually blind. The Jews in Esther's day were not speaking to God in prayer, and God was not speaking to them through prophets. Yet, God was there. He is flawlessly faithful to his people, even when they ignore him, reject him, and rebel against him. He is flawlessly faithful to his people when they cry out, someone needs to do something. We will see that as the story continues to unfold. In verse 4, Esther is deeply distressed by Mordecai's public show of mourning. It says, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. The word translated as distressed means to writhe in anxiety. The term is often used of childbirth or of the wicked in judgment and refers to both physical and psychological pain. The adverb deeply is added for emphasis. Esther's servants knew of her close relationship to Mordecai, even though they may not have known that they were blood relations. Esther, living in the isolation of the palace, had not yet been made aware of what was going on. When Mordecai reached out to her, the evil and chaos of Haman's decree had not even touched the palace's happy bubble. Before she knew of the decree, Esther was greatly concerned about her uncle's actions. She could not understand 
why Mordecai was making such a spectacle of himself. This is what is deeply distressing her. Her first efforts are not to find out what is causing Mordecai to mourn, but to stop his mourning. Not only was it distressing to Esther, it distressed others. And if the king caught wind of it, was very, very dangerous. In the last part of verse 4, it says, She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Mordecai refuses to accept her gift. Only then did Esther decide to find out why he was so troubled. In verse 5, she orders Hathak, her attending eunuch, to go and find out the what and the why of Mordecai's mourning. Verse 6 tells us that Hathak found Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. It is here that Mordecai told him, verses 7 and 8, all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Mordecai's response to Esther is comprehensive. He left nothing out. He included his inside knowledge of Haman's persuasive bribe, that the decree was for the destruction of all the Jews, and physical evidence, a copy of the decree. He instructed Hathak to command Esther to go to the king, beg for his favor, and plead with him on behalf of her people. Did you catch that? Mordecai was commanding Esther to finally let the cat out of the bag. The Persian king had married a Jewish girl. Not only that, he would soon find out that he had married a Jewish girl with chutzpah, the nerve to enter his presence without a royal invitation. This was Mordecai's command. He wanted Esther to leave the comfort of the Persian kingdom to try and save her people, God's people. Did Esther know enough about the covenant God of the Jews to leave the comfort of the, of the palace and trust God to rescue his people? Did she know God at all? You and I know what she did not. It gives us our first truth that God is flawlessly faithful to his people, even when they are faithless. How prone are you to forget God when life blows up? What is your first reflex when trouble comes? When was the last time you experienced the faithfulness of God. On that horrible day when we could not find my son, as chaos and uncertainty whirled around me, I had a choice to make. 
I could join the chaos and uncertainty of those around me. Or I could respond like the child of the king that I am. I chose to take my anxious mama heart to God. For the first time ever, complete helplessness moved me to fall on my knees in fervent prayer. Almost immediately the hymn, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus, started to play in my mind. For the first time ever, I experienced the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, even though my son was still missing. For the first time ever, I knew what it was to trust in the faithfulness of God. And let me tell you, my friends, it is flawless. God is so faithful. He is fully trustworthy. He is the only true source of comfort, peace, help, and hope, even when your circumstances remain unchanged. Nothing in this world can compare. But Esther, Mordecai, and the Jews had nothing but this world to hang on to as they faced certain annihilation. Even then, God was faithful. God is flawlessly faithful to his people, even when they are faithless. Verse 9 is a transitional verse. It says, Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. In our next division, Esther responds to Mordecai's command by reminding him of the peril she faced. So our second division is the peril, Esther chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. Verses 10 through 11. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Esther is often portrayed as a Jewish heroine. But her initial response to this grave situation that Mordecai presented to her is less than heroic. Mordecai cries out, someone needs to do something, and I think that someone is you. But Esther is more afraid of placing her own life in danger than she is of the slaughter of her own people. She feared the law that forbid going into the king's inner court without being summoned. The penalty, we are told, for doing so was death with only a very small chance that the king might show mercy by extending his golden scepter. This alone could spare the violator the death penalty. Did you see Jesus revealed in the golden scepter of this pagan king? 
This law of the Persian kings whispers the name of Jesus. It paints an amazing picture for us. Scripture reveals Jesus in the Old Testament prophecy of a scepter which points to Messiah, the anointed one, coming from Israel through the line of Judah. God has extended him, his scepter, to us so that we might freely enter his holy presence without being struck dead because of our sin. Through Christ, the King of Kings has extended his golden scepter to us. Jesus created the bridge between sinners and a holy God. He has made a way for us to approach his glorious throne of grace freely, confidently, and boldly. God, he is the high king of heaven, and he alone has the authority and the power to hold out the scepter to us. And he has chosen to hold out his son, Jesus, the Messiah, as the scepter so that his people may live eternally in his presence. Apart from Christ, we would indeed be instantly struck dead if we approach the God who is holy, 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 and exalted in majesty on his throne. Jesus, the scepter, secures us from God's certain and coming wrath against all sin. Scripture teaches that God's wrath is the manifestation of his hatred of sin, wickedness, and all who defy him. God's just anger and just judgment is poured out against unrepentant sinners in the form of his wrath. The wrath of a crossed King Ahasuerus or of an offended Haman are fallen earthly expressions of wrath, which are self-centered and self-serving. Their wrath was not a just wrath. Another huge difference between God's wrath and the wrath of fallen men is that he provided Jesus to die as a substitute. He came and he took upon himself the wrath that sinners deserve. Those who violated King Ahasuerus' law, they are the ones who received the blow and died. There were no substitutes. God's wrath is also different because it reflects his holy desire and action for justice and righteousness to prevail. God's wrath will one day be poured out against all who have not responded to the extended scepter. And can you imagine what would happen if King Ahasuerus extended his golden scepter to someone and that someone scorned his invitation? Such a man would meet a swift and certain death. Historian Herodotus affirms the custom of the extended scepter in the Persian court. He writes that only members of seven special Persian families could approach the king without his permission. This did not include his queen. 
The life of a Persian queen was not necessarily one of great intimacy with the king. Esther dared not approach the king without his invitation, or she would surely die. Now Esther usually followed Mordecai's instructions. We have seen her devoted obedience to Mordecai in concealing her Jewish heritage. And Mordecai was used to being obeyed by Esther, even after she was crowned the queen. He must have been shocked at Esther's response. This time, she balks, answering with a resounding no. She refuses to transgress the royal law to go to the king and plea for her people. Since she could not go to the king uninvited, her only hope was to be summoned by the king. And that was a problem. At the end of verse 11, she says, I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days, meaning that she had not been called to her husband for an entire month. What other answer could she give to Mordecai? And how could he ask her to do such a thing? Mordecai knew she could not go to the king uninvited without risking her life. He knew that unless King Artaxerxes extended his golden scepter to her, her life would be taken on the spot. Make that King Ahasuerus. Unless King Ahasuerus extended his golden scepter to her, her life would be taken on the spot. Surely Mordecai did not mean to suggest that she put herself in that kind of danger. Now the irony here is that Haman had access to the king. Esther did not. In verses 12 through 14, we continue the conversation via messenger between Mordecai and Esther. And Mordecai does not let Esther off the hook. He sees her as the only hope for the Jews. Someone needed to do something. Mordecai replies to Esther saying, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther was not quick to take up the cause of her people because she feared for her own safety. If she believes that she will remain secure within the palace bubble, Mordecai reminds her that she cannot remain insulated from this decree. A Jew is a Jew, and Haman was determined to kill every last one. It was only a matter of time before her identity became known. In fact, Mordecai had already divulged her secret to hate that. In verse 8, when he commands Esther to plead with King Ahasuerus on behalf of her people. The Jews were her people. In the first part of verse 14, Mordecai makes another curious remark. 
He says that if Esther remains silent, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Now, this would be a really great time for the author to insert God's name. Many commentators assert that a strong allusion to God is assumed here and that Mordecai is referring to the Hebrew doctrine of God's providence. We see that. In 2020 hindsight, we see the flawless faithfulness of God at work on his people's behalf. The Jews were his people, an essential part of God's redemptive plan for all humanity. As a people in covenant with God, Israel had been delivered from the jaws of defeat more than once by his faithful hand. Was Mordecai thinking God would intervene now and deliver his people from destruction, even if Esther failed to act? It's not likely. Commentator Karen Job says that this was not a choice between two deliverers, God or Esther. It is a question of what human agency God will use to deliver the Jews since they have no king. Mordecai's point is that the Jews will be delivered somehow, but that Esther's doom is certain if she fails to act. In Mordecai's thinking, Esther's life may be in jeopardy if she goes to the king uninvited, but her doom is certain if she does not. Mordecai's remark is surely unsettling. Mordecai also suggests that maybe there is a greater purpose in all that has happened to Esther. A young Jewish peasant girl exiled in Persia is now in the Persian palace as the queen of the Persian empire? What are the odds? Mordecai says, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now this is the most famous phrase in the book of Esther. It encourages great faith in God's unseen but present care and providence, the unseen but ever-present hand of God. It encourages us to see and believe that God is flawlessly faithful to his people. Did divine providence place Esther on the throne so that she could intercede for her people? Could it be that every circumstance of Esther's life led her to the Persian throne just for this moment in time? when her people needed someone to do something? Unlike Esther, the King of Kings has extended his glorious scepter to you and me. And his name is Jesus Christ. When we respond to his gracious invitation, we are not only saved from God's just wrath against our sin, we become that someone who does something in the face of evil and injustice. We are called to be that someone who does something about those who are doomed for destruction. And God, he is flawlessly faithful to equip us as his agents of grace and love. That's our second truth. God is flawlessly faithful 
to equip us as his agents of grace and love. What have you done with the scepter God has extended to you? If you have received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, you are a child of the King of Kings, and his children have the royal liberty to approach his throne of grace with confidence, boldness. It is there that he will equip you as his agent of grace and love. How often do you take the royal liberty of approaching his throne of grace for granted? What will you do differently to approach God as frequently and as freely as you ought? God has always been, is, and will always be flawlessly faithful. He always has what is best for us in mind even when it is hard or heartbreaking. His gospel confronts us with the decision to either continue to live as pagans or to identify ourselves with God's people. When we decide to be identified with Christ, our lives are energized with a purpose bigger than our own concerns and problems. We are transformed God is flawlessly faithful to equip us as his agents of grace and love. And who knows, perhaps you have come to your present situation for such a time as this. Is your heart crying out for someone to do something? I know the feeling. When my son was lost in that storm, I needed someone, anyone, to do something. After many agonizing hours, our Coast Guard friends were finally able to raise the Rankin on the radio. For hours, they had been mistakenly calling the Franklin. That is why there was no response. My son and those who were with him were tucked away safely at a fishing camp. God used that terrifying event to plant the immovable fact of his flawless faithfulness in my soul. Now, no matter my plight, no matter the peril, I know that I can hold on to him. He will never, ever fail me or forsake me. Do you know that yet? If you are a child of God, your father is the king of kings. He has extended the scepter to you. You have direct access to him 24-7. He is the someone who can and will do something about whatever is making your heart cry. Have you cried out to him? Have you RSVP'd to the invitation of the scepter God has so graciously extended to you? If you have, are you ready to be the someone 
God uses to do something? Please pray with me. Oh, Father God, we praise you for you gave your one and only son to die for our sins and open the way for us to approach your glorious throne anytime we need to do so. Forgive us, O oh God, for taking that privilege lightly or for granted. Holy Spirit, be at work in our hearts, drawing us to yourself, growing us in holiness, and giving us the desire to serve you to the glory of your holy name. This we pray in the name above all names, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen.